This is the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than, evil, than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? You know, the amount of angst and fear and anxiety in our nation is at the highest levels that it has been in 20 years. It's matching what it was 20 years ago. Um, the, the Gallup organization asks a monthly question of Americans, and this is the question, in general, are you satisfied or dissatisfied with the way things are going in the United States at this time? And we're at 20-year highs again. Uh, right now, 86% of Americans are dissatisfied in the way that America is going and our nation is progressing. Uh, Americans of all stripes, they look at the state of our nation and they're concerned and they're dissatisfied and it's easy to understand why. The 50 largest cities in our nation have experienced a, on average, a 24% increase in their murder rate compared to a year ago. Uh, For example, last July, uh, July a year ago, July of 2019 in Chicago, there were 44 deaths. And this last July, a couple of months ago, there were 105 murders. 44 murders a year ago, 105 murders this year. And another 450 people were shot, they just didn't die in one month. 
And so people are looking at our country and we're seeing these things. We see the injustices that are in our nation that are being brought to the surface and it doesn't seem like they're getting rectified or they're getting answered in any kind of meaningful way by our leaders. And then of course there's COVID and all that's going on with the pandemic and you pile on top of that, the fact that our leaders, rather than ushering us through this challenging time in our nation are behaving like a bunch of spoiled brats arguing over the same toy. And as a result, Americans, uh, our anxiety and our fear is going through the roof and it's primarily dealing with the fact that we just don't know where we're going. There's so much uncertainty in our nation. You know, are we still gonna be doing this a year from now? Has our lives, are our lives gonna be fundamentally changed because of everything that is happening, are we ever going to go back to the way it was when we thought things are, you know, hey, we're, things are getting better in our country, or are we in a different time? It's, a, it's an important question, and, and a lot of people are, are concerned about this, and therefore the dissatisfaction that's happening. We're entering into a, a three-week study this morning on the book of Habakkuk. Now, I say Habakkuk, Jonathan said Habakkuk, it's a, a word that we don't really know how to pronounce. Um, it's, a, it's a, from a dead language, Akkadians. And uh, so we're probably all gonna get to heaven and he's gonna come to us and say, you guys really butchered my name, thanks a lot, okay? Uh, but I say Habakkuk. And so for the next three weeks, we're going to be in the book of Habakkuk in a series of messages entitled Faith in Fearful Times. And as we see in chapter one, many of the complaints and the concerns and the anxieties that we have vocalized over the last several months are being uh, shared by the prophet Habakkuk. This little book provides us with a framework for how to honor God, to live a life that honors God in a time that is uncertain, fearful, and where our faith is tested. Now, for those of you who like to take notes this morning, we're gonna break this chapter down into four sections. We're gonna start with the first four verses with the cry of the prophet. And then in verses five to 11, we're going to look at the command of the Lord. And then verses 12 to 17, we'll look at the challenges of God's sovereignty. And we will close out with the comfort for God's people that is in this first chapter. Let's begin with the cry of the prophet in verses one to four. Now the, the book of Habakkuk begins very differently than any of the other prof prophetic books that are in the Old Testament. <clears throat> and most of the prophetic books, you know, Isaiah and Nahum and Obadiah and all these kinds of guys, they normally start with a message, a direct message from God to a people, excuse me, <clears throat> to a people where, where he is announcing some kind of judgment or something that's about to happen to the nation or to the people that he's, he's speaking to through that prophet. But Obadiah, excuse me, Habakkuk is very different. It starts with a personal cry of complaint. He says, O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. He, he's wondering, Lord, why aren't you answering my prayers? 
Don't you see what's going on in my nation? Why don't you hear me? We're filled with violence. We're supposed to be a light unto the Gentiles, unto the nations, but instead what we have is darkness. How can you stand by idly and and not help us when we're being consumed by these negative forces that are at play in our nation? What is going on? You know, uh, this opening cry actually helps us understand and kind of set the the context and the timing of when all this is taking place, right? If you look at at what he says about the environment of Israel, and then you compare what is next said by God in verses 5 to 11, we can actually pinpoint when Habakkuk was interacting with God in this way. Uh, To give you a quick, we're going to play history detective for a couple of minutes, right? I'm not not trying not to geek out on history here, but this is the Assyrian Empire, right? They end up for 300 years from roughly 950 to 609 BC. They are the dominant power in the Middle East and the ancient world from the whole Fertile Crescent all the way across into Egypt. All right? and, 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 and they interact with Israel. We read about them in the Old Testament. For example, Israel broke up into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom after the death of Solomon. The northern kingdom is actually invaded by Assyria in 721 BC. And they fall, and uh, the, the Israelites that are in the northern kingdom are taken by the Assyrians, and they are dispersed throughout, the, throughout their kingdom, and those ten tribes drop off the face of the earth. Right? They come down to Judah and they, attack, they want to attack Jerusalem, but God miraculously and hilariously delivers the, the Israelites in Judah from Assyria and instead peace is struck and Judah becomes a vassal state to the Assyrians. They're the dominant power. But in 612 BC, the Neo-Babylonians arise, and Nebuchadnezzar, actually his dad, I think Nebuchadnezzar, and they, they all begin, and, and they, in 612 BC, they attack the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, which is Nineveh, and I think, I, I, I don't know, I won't even mess with the laser here, but you can maybe see it up there. It's in the top right, okay? And in 612, they sack and pillage Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. The leadership of the empire runs west to northern, what we would call northern Syria. Syria nowadays to Haran and Carchemish, and they set up work uh, shop there. Um, Egypt hears about this. They are allies. They are vassals of, of Assyria. And so the Pharaoh, Pharaoh Necho, takes his army, and he starts to march north to help them fight the Babylonians. And they come to Judah. In 609 BC, they ask King Josiah is Josiah here? Yeah, right. King Josiah. They asked Josiah, can we march through the country to get north? And Josiah says, no, you cannot come through our nation. He understands what's going on here, and he refuses. And so there's a massive battle, the Battle of Megiddo, which we know as Armageddon, the Valley of Armageddon. And Josiah, the good, godly king of Israel, is killed in 609 B.C. And so, uh, you know, Necho makes his way on up and he gets up to Carchemish and Haran and there's a final battle between the Babylonians and the Assyrian allies. In 605, the Assyrian empire comes to an end and the Babylonians now under Nebuchadnezzar come south and this is where you get to the book of Daniel when Daniel and all these guys are sent over to, uh, to the fertile, to, to Euphrates area and all that takes place. That's the history of this, okay? Now, we know 
from what is said here at the very beginning that Israel is in a state of corruption, injustice, violence. It's a horrible time, right? Well, this doesn't describe Josiah because Josiah was a godly man. He rebuilt the temple, rediscovered the law. Over his 30-year reign, he preaches and has the law taught. There's revival in the land. But when he dies, his son Jehoiakim takes, uh, comes to power. And this guy is absolutely a scumbag. He's a scumbag. No other way of phrasing it, right? He is an incestuous, literally an incestuous sexual deviant who just murders at will. And the country is rampaged. He, he has no fear of God. You should read what the rabbis say about this guy. They basically say, out of all the leaders, and all the leaders, he's, he's worse than even Manasseh. And Manasseh had a horrible... This guy, the rabbis say, he has no chance at all of enjoying God for eternity. They, they say, in other words, he's, he's in hell, man. This guy was bad. This is Jehoiakim. This, and so, so we know that it's in between the time that Jehoiakim comes to power, and yet in verses 5 to 12, the Babylonians are not yet seen as the world power. He says, I'm raising up these Babylonians, and you've heard of them, you've seen what they're doing, but they have not yet made it down to Jerusalem. So it's somewhere between 609 and 605 BC, chaotic, horrendous time to be alive in the nation of Israel. And by the way, just so you know, Jehoiakim gets his in the end in a most beautiful way that justice could come about, and I don't have time for that story, right? But he got his just deserts. Now, now the opening cry does more than help us, though, date the book when it was written and understand the times. It also reminds us of a wonderful privilege that we have in Jesus Christ as God's children. This book does something for us. It's a perfect example that it is okay. It is perfectly acceptable for us to wonder what is going on. It's perfectly okay to express our fears and our concerns to God about the events that are occurring in our lives and in our nation. Habakkuk is a godly man who is seriously hurting and he's confused and he's afraid. And church, wouldn't you be? <laughs> I mean, aren't some of us, even in the circumstances we're in, and, and I would contend they're not as bad as what Habakkuk had in many respects. So his interaction with God in this book is important. It gives us a framework as you look at chapters 1, 2, and 3, it gives us a framework through which we can interact with faith, fearful times. Now, what we're going to see in chapter 1 is that we go through phases of wondering. What is going on? And asking questions. And then there's a phase of, of waiting on God and, and working and just obeying God while we don't have answers. And then finally, it concludes with worship as things come to a conclusion in our hearts and minds. But this is not a linear thing. This is something that goes on over and over and over again in our lives. And, and while we wonder, we wait and we worship. And this framework comes through very clear in the book of Habakkuk. Chapter one is we wonder, chapter two is we wait, and chapter three is we worship. This is the framework of this book. So chapter one is all about wondering and asking God what's going on. I don't understand your work. I don't like what I'm seeing. Can you please explain? <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm afraid. I don't like what you're doing. And all this raw emotion that's here. Now, you might remember last week, 
I told you that faith is not some warm, fuzzy, inspirational feeling that is to guide our lives. Habakkuk's faith, and this is a good example of it, because Habakkuk's faith is about to get tested because God finally does answer his cry. He answers it with a command that is not at all what the prophet expected to hear. So let's look at the command of the Lord. Verse 5, look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march to the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Now let's, let's get to context. Habakkuk's crying out to God, God, why don't you save? Why don't you act and fix this? And God says, Habakkuk, I am acting. I am addressing the evil in your land. I am bringing justice to those aristocrats who are taking advantage of the poor and bringing them to the point of deprivation and even death. Habakkuk, I am answering your prayers, but you aren't going to understand my answer, and you certainly aren't going to like my answer. <laughs> I'm not going to answer it the way you want it to be answered, even if you could understand what I'm up to. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty, nation, who march to the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Verse 9, they all come for violence. All their faces are forward. They gather captives like sand. They sweep by like the wind and they go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Listen how God describes the Babylonians. This is his answer. But in his command to Habakkuk to look and listen and be astounded, God reaffirms an important truth. It's a, a central principle that is the, a bedrock truth of the Christian faith. That God is the Lord of the universe. And he's always at work accomplishing his purposes in his world and in our lives. The book of Habakkuk is one of the best books in the Old Testament that puts before us the absolute sovereignty of God when it comes to our lives and history and our nation. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, you heard me refer to him a few times as we were going to the book of Romans. He was a Welsh pastor. He pastored in the heart of London at Westminster Chapel for, I think, 30, 40 years. Well, he was on staff from the 1930s all the way into the 60s. You know, he pastored this church that had people who had gone through World War I, and then they had gone through World War II. You know, the, the century had started out on such a high note. The first decade of the 1900s, everything is, they're coming out of the Victorian age. The empire is at their strength. Life is good. Things are going forward. Everything is wonderful. And then World War I hits. And it devastates a generation of English people. 
And then right on the heels comes World War II, 20 years later, and it does the same thing. Two generations of English men are wiped off the face of the earth, and then as they come out of World War II, Europe and England is now threatened with the specter of communism. The people of England, their dissatisfaction was very high at that point in time. They did not have hope, much hope, for a better future. Things looked bleak. And so Martin Lloyd-Jones, who, who would have just, I mean, he was well-known, thousands of people would come, he preached many times throughout the week, decided, how do I address the concerns and the fears of my people? And he picked the book of Habakkuk to preach through. And the reason why was because of this central truth. It points to this central truth that God is the Lord of the universe. He's always at work. He is sovereign. What do we mean when we say that God is sovereign? This means that history is under God's control. That history is, follows God's divine plan. It follows God's divine timetable. Nothing is happening in history that is not under the control and according to the plan and the actual calendar of Almighty God. It all fits within his plan and his timetable. We see a good example of this with Habakkuk's contemporary. Um, the, the more junior prophet, at least in age at that time, but who would become what we would call a major prophet was Jeremiah. A few years after Habakkuk's oracle and his book, Jeremiah comes to the, the guy who takes over after Jehoiakim, Zedekiah, Jehoiakim's brother. And this is what he says to him. In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, this is Joachim's brother, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus the Lord said to me, it is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and the animals that are on the earth. Now stop, listen, as I'm reading to this, don't just let the words blur by. I want you to point and focus in and see where is God's sovereignty being taught and exemplified and illustrated in this passage, right? He says, it's I who by my great power, my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and the animals that are on the earth and I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Now I have given all these lands into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him also the beast of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. Do you see what he's saying here? I have raised up Nebuchadnezzar for a purpose. He is carrying out my plan in this land. He is doing what I want him to do. And guess what? His day is also coming. Because he's doing this, it says in verse, uh, verse uh, 9 or 10, he's doing this out of his own might as if he is God. Not to honor God, Jehovah, but because he thinks he's all that. But he's going to get his own according to God's timetable. But he is in their God's control, carrying out God's plan. Church history is God's divine plan being carried out under his control according to his timetable, and it is being done because of his divine kingdom. History is bound up 
and the kingdom of God. It's not about our pleasure, our comfort, our nation, our plans, or our vision for what should or should not be. History is all bound up and with the divine kingdom and the plan of God to bring his kingdom to consummation here on earth. And so whenever our desires and our concerns and our questions about God and his sovereignty butt up against one another, there is going to be conflict. There's going to be confusion in our hearts. We are going to be challenged by God's sovereignty. And this is what's happening to Habakkuk. And you see this as, as God reveals to Habakkuk what is going on, Habakkuk flips out. That's what happens in this passage. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment. And you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make us like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. And he goes on and he says, What's your, I mean, what are we? We're just like little fish. And the fisherman's come along and he's catching us on his hooks and he's going to just eat us up. This is what's going to happen, God. Church, God's sovereign plan and his answers to our prayers will often cause us to come to conclusions like Habakkuk, to express emotions like him, to not understand and to be confronted and to be even maybe more confused than what we were before we even began asking the questions. And so these challenges... When, when, when our concerns and our fears and our uncertainty butts up against God's sovereignty, these are watershed moments in our spiritual journeys. These are moments of incredible testing and trial that are going to either take us to a deeper understanding of our God and deepen our faith in Him or something else happens. You see, these challenges, many people will adopt a very pious response when we come to times like this. Who am I to question the Almighty God? I just accept what He does. Blah! Okay? That sounds really pious, but you know what that leads to? That leads to just a legalistic sense of obligation to God. It leads to a very shallow, trite empty faith. And it ultimately leads to resentments that take you to the same place as what happens to the second group. Some respond with a very pious attitude. There's another group. Many use this type of a situation to enter into judgment of God. Right? And we look at what's going on in our life and we just say to God, what you're doing makes absolutely no sense to me. I do not like this. This is not right. What are you thinking? If this is who you are, I don't want anything to do with you, man. I'm out of here. I'm done. Right? And that's what many people in our day and age do. And in part, this is 
how people have responded to God and why we see, I think, increases in people who claim to be Christians walking away from the faith and, and the escalation of agnosticism, atheism, and things like this. As people come to these challenges and they enter into judgment, now, they don't respond with piety. They, they respond with superiority towards God. And they enter into judgment upon God. But there is a, a third way. The third way is not to run from the challenge and to adopt some pious attitude or to run from God and abandon him. The third way is to wrestle with God and the challenge to your faith through transparent, honest prayer. This is what's going on in Habakkuk. This is verses 12 to 17. Habakkuk's faith is being challenged, greatly challenged, and he is confused. He doesn't understand. And so, thankfully, we get this incredibly honest, open look into the soul of the prophet of God who is struggling and wrestling with God. This is an incredible gift to us that God gives us with this raw emotion from the prophet of God being poured out, poured out into the pages of God's holy word. You know, one uh, scholar and commentator, Francis Anderson, in his commentary, he says, and, and this will help us understand what's going on in the heart of, of Habakkuk. He says that the opening rhetorical question in verse 5, those words, Are you not from everlasting, O God? That this is something that is unique in Scripture. This is what he says. He says most of the 96 occurrences of this word in the Bible are in vigorous human arguments. Nothing, therefore, could have been more abrupt than the beginning of Habakkuk's second prayer in verse 12. There is nothing like it anywhere in the Bible. God is not being approached with courtesy and respect by reverent invocation as in more decorous prayers. Habakkuk comes to God with raw, human, transparent emotions and honesty before God. Hey, here's what's essentially what's happening here. And, and forgive me for putting it in maybe my language and modern language, but he starts by asking God, aren't you the eternally wise God? He's been told, I'm sitting there. You're not going to understand my answer. I'm sending the Babylonians. Have a nice day. <laughs> right? And Habakkuk says, hold on, Lord. Time out. Aren't you the all-wise, all-infinite, eternal-knowing God? In other words, this is your plan. I can't do you know, Dan's voice, you know, what he did earlier. But that's, this is your plan? Your plan? Your answer to my prayer about the violence of my country is to bring even more violence into my country. Your answer to my prayers that we would become a light to the nation and that the darkness in our nation would be pushed back is to bring more darkness into our nation. I mean, your answer to my prayer that we would have justice is to bring a people in who don't even understand the word. I mean, Lord, I understand. He says in, in verse 12 and 13, I understand we do deserve judgment. We deserve your chastisement. And I get that this is what you're doing, but, but the Babylonians? What? 
Are you serious? I mean, Lord, I know we're bad, but have you checked these guys out? They're horrible. And as bad as we are, we're nothing like them at all. What are you doing? They're going to destroy us. They're going to kill all of us. They're going to wipe us out. I don't get this. How can this be what a holy God does who hates sin to let a sinful people like this come in and ravage us? This does not compute. <laughs> That's verses 12 and 17. Okay? Church, God is the Lord of the universe. He's always at work accomplishing his purposes in our world and in our lives. So it is inevitable that unless you stick your head in the sand and adopt some pious attitude or you just run and abandon the faith completely, it is inevitable that you're going to have some questions like Habakkuk's and you're going to experience these deep emotions like he does at some point in your life, maybe even right now. And sometimes it'll be a greater degree than others, but this is real life. I'm so glad God puts it in his word so that we can see this interaction with God. This is gonna happen because God's purposes will challenge the presuppositions about what is our presuppositions about what is best for our life. God's sovereignty and his purposes and his sovereign work is going to reveal our idols and the things that we cherish more than him. His work will address sin and evil in this world while he works for the consummation of his kingdom. And all of that will not happen in a way that we can predict and totally understand at the moment. It won't happen in accordance to our wisdom. It won't happen according to our timetable. And it won't always happen in a way that we like. And so that's why in the middle of this emotional outpouring before God, it's important for us to look at verse 12 and see the comfort that is actually in this passage for God's people when we go through these times of deep questions and emotional outpourings before God. The comfort of God's people in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One. We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. Habakkuk is a godly man who is an emotional and spiritual whiplash. He is, what? Okay, this is who you are. What? This is, I know this is who you are, Lord. This is what's going on. Okay. And he says, okay, okay. This is your plan. All right, but you're Jehovah. And in the middle of all of this, he reminds himself of something important. He reminds himself of who God is is. He reminds himself of who he's talking to in this prayer. He's the holy, perfect 
covenant-keeping God. He's the, the God whose covenant love is forever and ever and whose grace will never end. Therefore, he feels confident to boldly complain, <laughs> to vent a great word I'm about to give you. You've heard it from Paxson on more than one occasion. To lament. To pour it out in the agony of his soul and to lament before God and to vent his spleen to the rock of Israel. And he isn't abandoned. And why is this the case? Habakkuk doesn't get struck down for questioning God's plan and wondering what's going on. Instead, he enters into the moment and he pours out his soul before God and he doesn't get struck down for blasphemy and challenging God. Instead, he gets grace from God and love from God. And why is this? Because 600 years later, the rock of Israel is going to take on human flesh. And we know him as Jesus this is the one who says to us, you have a choice. Will you build your life on the sand of this world or will you build your life on me, the rock that cannot be moved? Will you obey me and have everlasting life? This is the one who goes to a garden one evening and he looks at the cup of trouble and tribulation that he is about to drink and he cries out to Jehovah, is there any way possible for this not to happen? The plan could come out differently. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. This is the one who submits to God's plan where the worst injustice and violence and sin in history is committed. Why? So that all injustice and all violence and all sin can one day be eradicated at his second coming and his return. This is the one, this rock, who cried out on the cross and he poured out his heart to God. But in his case, he was abandoned. He was forsaken. And God turned his back on him. Why? So that when we pour out our hearts to God, being in Christ, when we pour out our hearts and we ask our hardest questions, he never abandons. He never forsakes. He gives us more and more grace because the rock of Israel paid the price for our sin on that cross. And so we can come to him, the one, the rock, that for some of you is the rock of stumbling. You've yet to trust in him. You've yet to commit your life to him. You're trying to do life on your own. There's no bigger recipe for disaster and failure than that right there. You know, the book of Habakkuk is not quoted very often in the New Testament. Next week, we'll see a verse that's often quoted, but there is a verse from chapter one that is quoted in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey They've come to Antioch of Pisidia. They've been preaching in the synagogue. The Jews are interested. The Gentile converts are even more interested. They're excited. 
And so they come back for another week of preaching and teaching. And this time the Jews rebel. They want to persecute. They want to throw them out. And finally, ultimately, um, Paul turns to those Jews and say, you are rejecting Christ. Why are you rejecting Christ? And the reason why is because, and he quotes verse 5 of chapter 1, God is doing a work that you can't believe even when it's right in front of you and somebody tells you about it. And, and so, dear brothers and sisters and people, some of you I know are struggling with who is Christ. You're struggling with what is God doing. Let me encourage you, don't stumble over Christ. And if you've yet to receive him, turn to God in prayer. Identify what is it that's stopping you from trusting in Christ? What is it? Have you quantified that? Have you put it down on paper? Have you dealt with that with somebody who maybe can carry you through those questions? And there's many of us here who would love to. Have you taken that step of beginning to pray and ask God, God, would you open my eyes to Jesus, the rock of Israel? Church, Jesus is the rock who protects his covenant people even in the most dangerous times. Jesus is the rock who gives stability even in the most unstable of times. Jesus is the rock through whom we receive grace even as we sometimes strongly, loudly, maybe even bitterly wrestle with God and His sovereign plan. So let me relieve you with a verse of comfort that helps us understand why this is the case. The author of Hebrews says, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, this rock of Israel. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted and as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us then with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Church member filled with uncertainty, anxiety, fear, concern about the future of our nation, of your life, of hurting over pain and trials and tribulations, the great comfort is that the rock of Israel has obtained for you the right to pour out your heart like Habakkuk and not be afraid of being struck down, but instead receive grace. Take advantage of that privilege, people of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at this passage. Thank you for Habakkuk. Thank you for not hiding from us the frailties of the human condition in your word, showing us how your grace overcomes our sin, our frailties, our doubts, our concerns, our questions. You do it in the most loving way because we are your people who trust in the rock that is Jesus. Lord, for the one who's not yet built their life upon that rock but is on the sand of this world, would you help them to see the truth? Would you give them a heart that loves Jesus, eyes that understand, ears that can hear, 
May they come to trust in him alone and receive this grace they need in time of need. In your name we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.